and to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. That's a key theme for the passage we're about to read and for what rest really is. The Lord is re-emphasizing the message of repentance in our midst. There is no rest without repentance. And, and of course that's in this passage. You'll see where I'm going in a moment. Another observation to make before I read on. Most of the miracle ministry of Jesus was done in cities that he had to rebuke for not repenting. Miracles are non-negotiable tokens of the kingdom and manifestations of the kingdom. We believe in the supernatural and we seek to cultivate it. But miracles in themselves do not mean you've arrived. The real fruit of the kingdom is people, people whose lives are changed and who are like Jesus. So if he performs miracles and they don't repent, there's no, you know, there's no magical potion to miracles. Jesus was not pleased with these cities who did not turn into the kingdom. Woe to you, Corinthine. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in uh, yeah, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and for, for the land of Sodom, excuse me, in the day of judgment than for you. Uh, a little bit of, of relevant trivia. All of these cities that Jesus named, you know, to this day in the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. So many biblical cities are occupied right now by Israelis, but these are not. These remain in ruins. I mean, these woes lasted. You can go visit them as a tourist, but no one's living in this village of Nahum, Capernaum, you know, Capernaum. This was a thriving city in Jesus' days where he did a lot of his miracles, where he lived much of the time. Nothing but ruins. This was for real. Repentance is when the rubber hits the road. And, and, and for people like us who have given ourselves to the kingdom, we have repented. There is still a lifestyle that recognizes the force of repentance that should be recognized each and every day. That creates rest. So after that, in verse 25, here's our main passage. Jesus says, uh, in verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. And learn from me, because I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. Father, we ask for the touch of your spirit right now on us again in a fresh way. 
we would speak in partnership with the Spirit, we would hear in partnership and be revived in a vision of Jesus as He is, so that we might joyfully and with Your grace turn to Him in a new way. Lord, be renewed in Jesus and in His presence. In a new way, Lord, I'm, I'm asking You this morning, I believe in total agreement with You and with Your people, that you would revive us in Jesus in a whole new way. That we would turn our real corner in the spirit and in our natural lives. That just as Mike was prophesying earlier and others like him, Lord, that, that we would recover things that we were meant to maintain and steward. That we either lost or are allowed to fade into something less important than they really are. Lord, give us grace in the, in the light of your presence to recover things that are so crucial to your kingdom and our lives therein that we may have lost. Lord, give grace for these things. Revive us. Call us. Uh, cause these things to crystallize in our hearts that we might think and see clearly and, and relate to you in a whole new way as you relate to us. And we declare, I, I declare, right now over this whole meeting, over every life here, over every family represented, those that aren't supposed to be here or couldn't be here for various reasons, over them we also proclaim, Jesus is King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the three teaching slots that I get over the, the next three first Sundays, December, January, and February, I want to unfold this issue of rest because without trying to sound too hyper about this topic, I've always seen the issue of rest as one of the fundamental qualities of a good man. It's like a fountain from which every other, if not every other, most other streams of the character of Jesus come. Because, like Jesus said, come to me, dot, 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 and I'll give you rest, right? So wherever there's a lack of rest, there's got to be a lack of Jesus. A spirit at rest is the sign of the presence of Jesus. And so wherever we're not at rest, we're lacking Jesus' rule in our lives. And for most of us, if not all of us here, who've been walking with the Lord for some time, we're developed people. Uh, we have our hearts ruled by the Lord, and we're radically different than the world because we have peace when others don't. And yet there are areas in our lives where we still need to develop and rest. It's a sign of uh, lack of development, but we're all in process, so that's okay. Uh, I'm not saying this to be critical of us. This is just part of discipleship, which is what this passage is actually about. Uh, one of the, the, the real marks of a developed disciple is a, it's a peaceful spirit. It's being at rest. Because Jesus said, learn from me, I'm meek. So anyway... Uh, we all have areas where we're still working on becoming restful in the Lord. Because right? when we're at rest in the Lord, frankly, we can do anything. When we're at rest, when we're yielded to Him fully, and the result is a true peace ruling in our hearts, from that place, we can absolutely do anything. That's, that's not an exaggeration. That's, that's, I'm sure it's what Paul meant and where he was coming from. When he said in Philippians 4, I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. When you read the context there, 
busy. It's like, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he advises, think on certain things. That's where your mind is. You've got to come into a place where God is more real than the urgencies of this age. Because if, if, we're, if we're made urgent by the urgencies of this age, then our faith is compromised because that's more real to us than the kingdom. Listen, this is an extraordinary place to be. To talk about someone who's so developed, they're always at peace in the Lord at all times. You're talking about a highly developed human spiritual specimen. So this is not meant to make us feel bad. It's like, man, I'm still battling fears. Well, we want to minister grace to one another and develop on the same team. We're not talking about, you know, if you're not wrathful enough, clearly you're an immature believer. No, we were just trying to set the bar so we're going for Jesus and not being content with where we're at. We want to keep growing. Recognizing that it is the, the spirit that's at peace in God is the one that's available then to him to operate in works of faith on the earth. You know, Paul said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When we come to a place of peace, we're at a place of victory over the forces of darkness. I, I've heard Bill Johnson say before, and I've read it in his book, you know, we don't have any victory over any storm that we cannot sleep through. Looking to that example of Jesus who was asleep on the stern when the, the, uh, the, the storm was raging and the, bo- the, the boat was being tossed about, the disciples were anxious and afraid, and Jesus was asleep. Because in his spirit, he was at rest. His body could actually afford to rest in the middle of a storm. And then what did he do? He woke up. He could have slept through it, I suppose. He woke up and rebuked it. And the two were related to one another. So we have to value rest. We're told in Hebrews 4 to be diligent to enter his rest. So it doesn't, again, it doesn't come automatically. We have to value it and implement biblical tools to get there. We would be told to be diligent to get there, right? In Hebrews 4, I can remember one time, this one time, uh, I was, we were, we were back in Pensacola, and um, this was definitely spiritual warfare because I had a premonition of this exact thing happening in prayer the day before. I prayed against it. I don't know if I compromised or could have been worse or not. You know how that goes. But anyway, one of our daughters, I won't say which one, it doesn't matter. She, she didn't mean it. She was sliding the sliding glass door shut, and um, Evan's little finger was in there, and she shut <clears throat> right on his finger. And it was just the very tip, I think, of his pinky, or was it his second finger? It doesn't matter, does it? Uh, really got cut badly. It was almost like coming off. So, you know, he could have lived without it, but God wants him whole. Anyway, he was screaming, just a little tiny guy, screaming his head off, bleeding, uh, I was out, I was doing something, I forget, I was actually starting to witness to somebody, wherever I was, out somewhere, I think I was in the car fixed, and I felt like the Lord saying, I've not appointed you to speak to this man, you have to get home right away. So his cell phone rang as soon as I heard that, I'm like, I gotta go. So I gotta go, it's not, not, not recommended for witnessing this way, but as soon as I came back to our house, Gina called me, explained what happened, I was actually in the driveway, I got the cell phone call, and she explained what happened, so I just ran right in the house. I, I knew that's why the Lord wanted me home. They're in the bathroom wrestling <laughs> because Evan's just going berserk. He's like this floppy fish, screaming because his little finger 
is hurting badly. It's bleeding. You're going to the bathroom. And, and uh, Gina had already called the paramedics. I mean, so they were going to come and, and wrap it up and take them to the hospital. But I'm there first. God's man of faith and power. And you should have seen me go after this healing. Um, Evan was going absolutely berserk. He was screaming his head off. And I was screaming my head off. Rebuking the devil. Commanding healing. But it was all out of what I knew to do. But my heart was not at rest. My heart was afraid for all the blood that I saw. And his pain. And was agitated at how loud he was screaming. I don't mean like personally annoyed. I just mean like entering into the stress of that. So what I was doing was trying to shout louder. And uh, so there we were. Peace! I'm screaming. Peace! Be healed! I, I do believe there are times when we have to be loud and adamant, but that should come out of rest. Because you know what being at rest does? It makes you available to the mood of the Spirit rather than to your own mood. And when we incorporate his mood into our mood, where there may be a traumatic authority he's taking, there may be some somewhere where he's very quiet. It doesn't matter. His mood is always at rest from the urgencies of the world. And his mood, verbalized, will always bring the authority of the kingdom. But when we're just like theologically trying to state what's true in any situation, but we're not prophetically doing it because we're not united with the Lord at rest, it's not going to work. And it sure didn't work in our little Pensacola bathroom. So I'm just, I'm just roaring, you know, with my good old Italian adamance out of the anxiety of my heart rather, rather than out of the authority of the Lord. The paramedics come in. I don't know if they knew the Lord or not, but because they're so medically trained, they sure acted like they did. This guy, because I've got evidence, you know, he's squirming around on the floor, and I'm rebuking and healing. I'm doing the whole Jesus ministry out of the flesh. And here comes the paramedic. He comes in. He gets down by Evan, and he just scoops him up, holds him, gets him all secure, and he goes, shh, shh, Evan quiets right now. <laughs> and they hold his finger up, whatever it was, and they just start to rap. And one guy, and I thought, okay, man of God has the spirit. Maybe, maybe not man of God. Probably not. But he's so medically, he's so trained to respond to a situation like this. He kept his cool. His cool spilled over to Evan. He was able to wrap his finger. The man sewed him up, and Evan kept the edge of his finger. No thanks to me. <laughs> Mike Harry was telling me a story of uh, how uh, he was listening to a testimony of a pastor who really is a, uh, a man of miracles and sees a lot of the power of God in his life. Um, yeah, he was telling me the story. I, I think he got a report. He was out and about and got got word that his wife was in an accident, had a terrible head injury, and was in the hospital in a coma. And so he had seen God healed so many times that he was, you know, he just was going to believe and see his wife healed. And uh, he really, he just determined that he would stay at peace in faith when he drove to minister to her. So he, he just determined that he would just operate like you know, there's there's nothing wrong. Like Jesus responded to the woman, the, the, the parents, when the child was dead. He said, "Well, she's asleep, so, so stop crying." It's like God's power is just as real for this dead little girl as it is for your head cold. 
don't get all up in arms over head cold because we know if God doesn't heal us, we're still going to be okay. Well, his attitude was, well, God's just God's healing is going to be so real to me about her that I'm going to operate as if this is not the emergency everyone tells me it is. So he stops at the gas station and he gets gassed and he just decides, I'm just going to calmly get my gas. He sees someone that he knows. He says hello. He chats a minute. He gets in his car. He goes to the, the hospital. The, the, he's getting the information from the doctors. The doctors explain what's going on. He says, thank you. You do what you need to do. That's your perspective. You continue to do what you need to do for her. I want you to know that I believe, you know, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, however he put it. I don't remember the details, but you get the idea. Uh, I believe the Lord told me he's going to heal her. She's going to be absolutely fine without any further intervention. He goes in. He prays for her. He pronounces her healed. She's still in her coma right at first after he, uh, right after he prayed for her. And I don't know how long it was. It wasn't long. She woke up from the coma and was simply perfectly whole. There was nothing wrong with her. And so uh, to me, that's a real example. You know, I'm, I'm not saying we can always fake that. If you, if you react naturally to a loved one who's in some kind of trouble, that's why we have a body. But, you know, I, it's a lot easier for me to be cool praying for your loved ones than my own. I'm still there. I would still have to battle that. So again, I'm not trying to raise the bar so impossibly high that if you're not Smith Wigglesworth, you are a loser. That's not the point. The point is to give examples of something we're going for. When we can maintain a yieldedness to the Lord, where His truth and promises are so real to us that we're under His dominion rather than the dominion of the world, then that's the place of faith when we can actually release the power of God. But it's not just for miracles, it's for everything. You know, we, we went through seasons in our family when we were... Um, we were sacrificing for the ministry. And, and even though things could have been done better, I still think there was a season of sacrifice where we would not have gotten consistent paychecks. Anyway, and then just the way things were, we were very consistently not getting paychecks. If I had a dime for every dime that I did not get, uh, I would be, you know, I have a nice, a nice account in You know, and at first that was very difficult, but we learned how to trust the Lord and not the sources of our income. But it didn't happen after the first or second check didn't come. God kept having to bless us that way. Um, but you know, after a while, not that we were, I wasn't tolerating it as the head of my home. I was you know, doing certain things to make up for this, uh, the best I knew how to do in the Lord. But still, when it would happen, uh, after a while, when we heard, okay, you're not going to get paid on time, it may come a week or two late, or it may not come at all, after a while, it's like, oh, I've been here before. I've heard that news before. It doesn't shake me. I go to the Lord. I lean on Him. I pray. I get direction. It's like I know Jesus in this. So after a while of being trained through the difficult circumstances, when I was told, okay, no check again this week, because it was week, week, week to week, we'd wonder. It's like, come on, seven. Come on, seven. You know, wasn't like that. Wasn't like that. We didn't know from week to week, but after a while, I don't feel jerked around. Is it going to be or is it not going to be? What are you doing to me? It's like, no. It's like I'm a man of God who's committed to this ministry, or I'm not. And if I am, I'm going to act like one. But it took a little while to learn that. And after a while, when I hear the news, it'd be like, okay, been here before. I know it's due. <laughs> and it was able to, but it was all in the spirit, but it still took training. Man, the people of God are going to need that. We depend on the 
how do you say, the, the, the solid infrastructure of our culture more than we realize. And that all gets jostled up. Economy, you know, uh, uh, technology, uh, the, the ability to travel, uh, things that we've saved up for, and suddenly that money's gone. I'm not a doomsday speaker saying this is going to happen, but I sure ain't going to say it's not going to happen. What if it happens? What's our response? Are we as tied to that stuff as the world so that it takes our peace if it's gone? Or do we have a peace from a reservoir inside that's eternal? And it's easy to say that, but it's not easy to live in. And I'm not sure I'd trade those days for anything, even though there was a lot of complaining and a lot of criticizing going on when things are difficult like that. But my heart got trained not to depend on the greenbacks or the checks written or the digital money that gets put into your account. And I don't want to go back to that. But if I had to, I could say, okay, I've been here. I know, I know what Jesus feels like when this happens. I go to him and I commune with him and I trust him about it. Amen? Amen. So, rest ought to be valued by God's people. Because it's the practical outworking of actually knowing him and believing that he's real and his promises are true. So we're going for this rest thing. I have just a few comments to make. Just a couple hours worth of them. I want to talk about this morning in light of uh, Matthew 11 and how valuable rest is. It's like, well, how do we get to it? Well, there's three things I want to talk about over the next three sessions we have uh, um, in terms of the, the tools or topics that get us to rest. And the first one is genuine repentance. There's no rest without repentance. The second one is meekness, and we will talk a little bit about meekness today, I think. Uh, meek spirit is the same as being at rest, and we want to talk a little bit about that a little today. Maybe the next time will be I'll dedicate the whole topic to meekness. And then the, finally, the, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the, the reality and power of being immersed in the Spirit. Uh, that's like a main topic that leads to rest. There's no rest without the cross. The cross speaks repentance and meekness. And there's no rest without having the presence of the Spirit, because that's the great alternative. The actual presence and life of God that saturates us. We cannot carry kingdom DNA unless we're soaked in the liquid of the cross and the Spirit. It's just the meat and potatoes, baby. Come on. We can't do it. We're going to have house churches. We're going to do our children different. All that's awesome. That's the new wineskin Mike was talking about. But you can do that and still not be practically acquainted with the cross and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that still has to be our foundation. And when we are acquainted deeply and practically with the cross and what it means as lifestyle, and with the Spirit and what His presence and power mean as lifestyle, without those things, we won't have rest. With them, we will. And we'll be just of a completely different spirit than the world. Frankly, here's the odd thing. Not only with those things do we have rest, but when we obey Hebrews 4 and enter into God's rest, then we provide a resting place for the spirit. So it works both ways. It's not just ask for more of the spirit so that you can have rest. You know what? We have to steward these things. It's off, and this is why I'm speaking on this topic this morning. It's up to us to develop a restful spirit. And to be discipled by the Lord and by one another when we face life's challenges 
to come into rest. Because when we come into rest, we become more attractive to the Holy Spirit. Amen? We attract Him when we, when we enter a place of rest. That's the picture we get of Jesus being baptized when that, the Spirit came as a dove and rested on Him. He, uh, Isaiah 11.1, 1, the Messiah, says the Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. And that was fulfilled in Matthew 3. And the Spirit actually took the form of a dove and rested on the shoulder of Jesus. I assume the shoulder. He didn't get in his head or whatever. Maybe, you never know. But it's not easy to get a dove to land on. It's like we all have the Spirit. But to experience the Spirit in such a way where he rests on us. And that takes a kind of person that's special. I'm not talking about earning anything. We're mature enough to know I'm not talking about works. I mean, I want to experience these things, so I'm going to talk about them freely. When we're at rest, the Spirit rests on us. If we're not at rest, we may have the Spirit. We may have access to some of His qualities. There's a whole different mode of being when the Spirit of God rests on a man or a woman or a child. That's what Smith Wigglesworth said. Out of his experience, he said, you want to know what the Spirit of the Lord is upon me means? It's not just when you get a revelation. It's not just when you, you have an encounter with God. All those things are precious. It, it's, it is what it says. It's when the Spirit of the Lord is on you, that's where the power is. And he was a man who didn't just have the Spirit theologically and get some, you know, learn how to prophesy all things we value. He was the kind of person that the Spirit of God actually rested on. Because he dared to believe God. He used to say there's no emergency in the Holy Spirit, right? Or we have the Holy Spirit for every emergency. So his response was, well, I, I believe God's promises. Well, the Spirit of God rested on him and rests on people. I want to attract the Spirit in a special manifestation. Not just a run-of-the-mill New Covenant manifestation. Where just come on, believe God's in you. Come on, let's prophesy. And I believe in all that. I, I teach that way. You'll hear me teach about that. But there's even more to it than that. There's a quality of life. There's a courage that's required of God's people to actually step out into the wild blue yonder of Jesus that attracts the presence of God. Where His presence is a tangible reality that's resting on us rather than something that we have to invoke all the time. Whether from within or from above. I want to be there. The image of Jesus in the baptismal waters of the Jordan is recalling the days of Noah when there was a flood and there was nowhere for that dove to land his feet and rest. So the dove had to come back to the ark. These are biblical images. It goes back to Genesis 1, right, where the Spirit was hovering over the water. The implication is there's nowhere for him to land because he was looking for humanity. So God began to speak, and when he created a, a human, there's the first implication that God's spirit that was hovering over the waters was looking for a human to rest on. And so in Noah, you have a, uh, the Noah story of the ark. You have a recovery of that story. The dove was an image of the spirit hovering over the waters that flooded the earth. And when Noah would send them out, the dove would come back because there was nowhere to land. And then, you know, the story goes on. As land began to break through, the dove stayed away, had a place to rest. But in, spiritually speaking, actually the dove was still looking and hovering over the waters of chaos for someone at rest upon whom he can rest. And found that person in young Yeshua in the days of his baptism. That dove came 
and lit upon him. And now it's like, now the Spirit has someone to rest upon. Now there's a Jesus people that he wants to rest upon us. So how do we get to that rest? Well, we get there, first of all, through repentance. So again, the context of, our, of my teaching here, uh, if, if you'll allow me to go through some of my points now, we're recognizing a season of rest where we want to emphasize this issue and incorporate it into our souls. We want to pray about this. We want to talk about this. And we want to face challenges with this quality that we're seeking in our minds rather than just reacting in the natural. It's something we have to develop as we enter into our season of rest. Uh, along with that, we're going to give our house church leaders a break so that all of us, instead of being concerned about it, going to meetings and getting our homes ready or whatever, we can celebrate Christmas with our families. You can travel if you need to travel. You can have people travel to you. Uh, and it's, just, it's just a time like the winter when we're going to lie dormant for a couple of weeks and then come back all revved up. That doesn't mean you're at rest from your relationship with God. That should remain active. We don't go dormant in our relationships with one another. Just do as you wish. But as far as King's People activities, we're going to cease after the middle of the month. We still have a corporate meeting like this for just worship and prayer on Saturday, December 15th, I think it is. Yeah. So that'll be our last meeting as King's People until January 6th. We can all take a break until January 6th, which is first Sunday of January, we'll meet corporately like this. And then after that, the house churches will start up. So we're all going to take a break. That doesn't mean you can't call your friends and hang out. We should still be the body of Christ. But it gives our home groups a chance to like breathe and then go do their Christmas holiday things. And it also helps us not be all tied up where we have to keep our ministry church machine running all the time. We don't depend on the money. We don't depend on, you know having to gather to make the machine run or we'll lose people. We're not going to worry about things like that. We're going to be at rest. So this gives all of our volunteer workers some time off. We want to do that every year and then do another form of it in the summer. So that there's not some grinding machine we're always after. That's not what church is supposed to be. You've got to put on the show and have it there for everybody. Well, we are the show. We're the people are the thing. So to recognize that and to help us, we're going to take some breaks. All right? So that's our schedule. And that's, but there's a spiritual parallel that we're speaking on too. That's what I'm addressing today. So is that clear? That makes sense? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Some of you are smiling back at me. Some of you are starting to rest already, which is good. And some of you, actually, everybody, no one looks confused or anything. Okay, now we're, we are, the last season we were in was uh, an emphasis on missions on our mission as God's people. And that, of course, when we leave the season of emphasizing mission, doesn't mean we're disengaged from mission. That continues, you know. What, what we do is when we emphasize something in a season, we emphasize it, but we keep living it during the other seasons. Like our spring will be given to prayer, but when that springtime is over, we won't stop praying. All these things should always be happening. There's just going to be times that we highlight them. So I really encourage you, if you're still praying about your area of service, uh, continue to pray about it. If, if you've chosen an area of service in our city, then, then please still make your plans and continue to operate that way. If your group decided to be more organic and just spontaneous on mission, please stay engaged with these things, but let's, let's incorporate now these other issues now of rest. 
Which, interestingly, as we turn back, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, looking at verse 28. Uh, this passage of Scripture, chapter 11, comes after the section in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus introduced mission to his disciples. He was on a discipleship track, and Matthew 8 through 10 was all about mission and discipleship. All the miracle stories where Jesus is ministering to people in the power of the Spirit. And then in chapter 10, he sends them out and says, okay, you go. It's all about mission. We are now in chapter 11. So it's on the heels of the mission passage in Matthew that Jesus introduces the issue of rest. So we're tracking with Jesus right now. We're doing the same thing, roughly. And Jesus teaches about rest in the context of the section of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus introduces his disciples to the reality of the mystery. So stay with me here now. I know that I'm using a lot of different words here, but it works this way. After mission, Jesus began to teach on the reality that he's a mystery. This is what I'm talking about. Remember, we read the passage when most of the cities did not repent and we saw his miracles? Right as soon as chapter 11 begins, we begin a section in Matthew where Jesus begins to explain to his disciples and to announce to the world who still wasn't believing, here's the deal. What you expected me to be is not what I am. I mean, here I am as the king, the promised Messiah, according to the scriptures, and somehow fulfilling the scriptures, being the Messiah, expected by the Jews, somehow I still managed to sidestep your expectations and most of my people and most of the world at this time was not receiving Jesus even though he was fulfilling the, the mandate and the promises of the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus then again climaxes in chapter 13 where he says, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, to them it has not been granted. What's, what the way God's operating is not as clear blue as everybody expected. He's operating in a mystery because I came requiring something you didn't want to give. I think this is the bottom line personally. Speaking to Israel and then anyone to who would not believe. Uh, he, he says, my first requirement is not to establish a political kingdom that would then give you back your, your, your greatness as the nation of Israel. And I'll just put down the Roman Empire and we'll just get on with life according to Daniel 7. When the, the Son of Man comes with the clouds and the saints of the Most High receive the kingdom. Israel is reestablished as the head and not the tail. And they rule the world and Messiah rules from Jerusalem. Jesus says, actually, I come fulfilling those verses, but before I fulfill a political mandate, I want the hearts of people. I want to rule them in the heart and in their relationships and in their daily lives, even if I do not reorder the world yet. And so he, he introduces this hard reality to his disciples. I am giving my kingdom now this way, not your way. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Because I'm going to allow a chaotic world to coexist with you, peaceful kingdom citizens. You will administer my kingdom 
even though I've overthrown the powers of darkness, I will not remove them. So that world will be going on parallel with your world. And that means you will be rejected by some or many. There will be many who stumble over this witness of the Messiah. We're reading right now Matthew chapter 11. We're referring back to there in a moment. The beginning of this chapter, you read back, you check me on this, it's all right there. Of all people, John the baptizer is in prison and doubting now, are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? I mean, John, you had the spirit, you had clear revelation. You were the one announcing, and when he came into the baptismal waters of the Jordan, you said, this is him. And you saw God say, this is him. And you announced the one on whom the Spirit comes. He's the one, behold the Lamb of God. I mean, you did all that. Why are you now doubting? Well, because he's in prison. And Jesus has not liberated him, nor will he. So Jesus says, you go back and tell John, I'm doing all the kingdom stuff. The blind receive sight, the dead are being raised. The, the, I, I forget the whole list right now, I'm on the spot. But the poor have the gospel preached to them that's the message of the kingdom. And blessed is he who does not stumble. And so when Jesus says in verse 28, come to me, that's the me he's talking about. And that's why he's giving us this invitation. Because the me... The Jesus, me, that he speaks of in verse 28, is in the context of this mystery that's now appearing to Israel. It's like, I'm appearing the way I am, not the way you want me to be. That's the me you have to come to. If I am not here to change the political landscape yet, yet, which by the way, some believers are strongly teaching, it's our job to change everything before we bring Jesus back. I think they're stumbling over the mystery. I think there's some things we're not meant to change, and there's some things we are meant to change, because we're being tested and refined in this age. We bring the kingdom the way Jesus did. We don't change political structures yet. We can influence them and change them, but we're not supposed to change the world and set up this government. He's supposed to do that. And there are Christians today who are stumbling over Jesus, wanting to replace the governments of men with the government of God. And it's not going to happen on the side of the second return. There's going to be a certain degree of influence like we've had in our country. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to mock, that is to imitate, the, forgive the, the negative word, I didn't mean that, I meant to copy the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. We're supposed to follow in their footstool. <laughs> Footsteps. <laughs> Picture that metaphor, I'm dragging the footstool around. I'm following that footstool. Maybe, maybe it'll, it'll help us remember. I doubt it. We have to embrace the same Jesus today. He may not be what we expect. He always reserves the right to be himself. He doesn't conform to our image. So if we're going to enter into rest, it requires a real yielding to him who is in control. It does not put us in control. He's not going to orient our world necessarily the way we want it. If we put him in control, he's going to orient our world the way he wants it. And then what we do is we come to him. We yoke with him as he is, as he's operating. And we learn his meekness because meekness is submission to the ways of God. It's the one great rebuke to human pride that wants to remain in control. And so Jesus is saying... This is the me I want you to come to. 
You have to come to me as I am, not as you want me to be. The Jews had political expectations. We all have our little versions of that. We want God to operate on a certain timetable and in a certain way. And Jesus said, if you want that and you come to me, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And disappointment is a regular Christian killer. But if he who believes in him will not be disappointed. If we yield to him as he is and trust him, then we're not, we're not coming to him on our terms. We're coming to him on his. And that is the very definition of meekness. That's why Jesus said, you're going to learn from me. I'm the king, and this is the way I operate with my father. And I'm the king. As king, I'm not the dictator who does his will. I'm the dictator who does God. I'm the king who does God's will. So I model the very kingdom I want you to be in with me. So you come to me and learn how I relate to the father. I don't do my will. I do his will. If he beckons me from the palace of eternity and says, I'm, I'm sending you, I'm sending you out in the form of a servant, you're going to look and be a human. And you're going to do my will, not your will, and that will put you in, in the position of a Roman cruci crucifixion, uh, capital punishment, that will make you look anything but like the king of heaven. But that is my plan in order to release life into people who believe. That's the plan of salvation. Then the king's position is, well, I may be the, the, the king of kings, but my father is my God. And whatever he says I do, without any regard for it, but I'm the king. I should be eating, I should be able to make bread if I want it for myself. I should have some dignity, you know. Instead of dying this way, is, is there another way? Well, if there is no other way, Father, your will be done. That's the meekness of the king. So he says, I am the me you then have to come to and learn my way of meekness. Then you'll have rest. Because if you're trying to let God be God and yourself have control, there's going to be a, a division in your heart and it will cause stress. That's why he doesn't just say, come to me. As the mystery man, he also says, learn from me because I'm meek and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So I have a couple of other passages of scripture and more to develop in this as far as coming to him. But uh, before we do that, any comments or questions? Was that? Thank you, sister. That was planned, by the way. I asked her to say that. <laughs> well, everybody's so nice here. They're not, or, or, unless you're going to say, I don't like it so much. No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, Go ahead. Okay, you talk about meekness, but what, give me some examples. Because people with different ideas of what meekness means. Okay. What could be an example of what you're talking about? All right, well, I'm, I think I'm going to hit this totally next time I speak. I think so. But for now, you know, meekness, meekness means gentleness. But for Jesus, it goes deeper than that. It's not just gentleness as a quality. It's a gentleness that's rooted in having no self-agenda. You've given it to God. It's simply saying, not my will, but yours be done. It's meekness because you're not stubborn wanting your way. You're willing to submit to God's way. That's why he uses the image of a yoke. You know, you're working for someone else. It, it's daring to say, not my will, but yours be done. That's a meek spirit, and it's the precise opposite of this world that says, not your will, but mine be done. There'll be a whole kingdom built on that premise. It's the Antichrist kingdom. 
at the end of the age is the way I understand it. So examples of meekness are the whole life of Jesus. Doing, I only do the things I see my Father do. Not my will but yours be done. It's like the opposite of selfishness. It's where the heart is supple and soft. To the slightest little prompting of the Spirit. Well, I don't belong to myself. So if I'm going to be inconvenienced by obeying this prompting of the Spirit, I don't belong to me. I'm soft on the inside to God's touch. I belong. It's a posture where you actually belong to God. I'm telling you, it alleviates everything negative from your life. Because the reason why we get negative and stressed is because we want something of our agenda done, even if it's small. Well, that person did wrong to me or whatever. What's up? But my way is simply to forgive as if they didn't do it. You have to submit to that. That's me. It's open to everything about God, even when it's contrary to what we want. If it's we want a certain financial package, we want certain relationships, whatever it is, meekness just says, Father, I belong to you. I don't belong to myself. That's the essence of meekness. And that's why it means gentleness, because a person that's like that can afford to be gentle with everyone. Because there's no agenda. I don't have to step on anybody. I don't have to move other people out of my way or get mad because they got something I wanted. I don't belong to me. So meekness is a spirit. Spirit of meekness Jesus had on him. Because he belonged to God and lived that way. That's what I would say. Yes, ma'am. And it creates rest. Oh, and one other thing we have to learn it from Jesus. Yes, ma'am. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that our identity, we discover who we are when we actually learn it specifically from Jesus. Because as awesome as we are in the spirit, all of that is at God's disposal. So it's, it's the meek spirit that yields to God's will is what releases the knowledge of what we are. And then releases the power of 
Because Jesus knew exactly. I mean, think of the way he's speaking of himself. I mean, how many people you know can go around saying, I'm humble, you should come to me and learn from me? That doesn't sound very humble. But he was so selfless, it was true. It's not that I won't talk about myself. I know exactly who I am. You can't know who you are if you're not meek and humble. To speak badly about yourself is not humility. To serve other people is humility. Oh, I'm such a jerk. It's like, that's not true. That's not true. That's just pride. You're saying something not true. What is true is you're a powerful person in God. What makes you humble is you take all that power and you give it away for others rather than keep it for yourself. And that's, that's who Jesus was. So he's calling the people, you want real repentance? Come to me and learn that from me. Because I'll make you awesome, but then give you the attitude where you, you be awesome. You be awesome. You be awesome to give it totally away for the will of God and the good of other people. Not to promote yourself. Every creature on earth should go through a course about how to do that. Your, your whole existence is not to promote you and your ministry but to promote the kingdom. That's, that's why you exist. That is your identity. Then you'll actually be able to say, hey, you know what? You should join what I'm doing. You should come learn from me because i got a handle on this thing. I know how to develop things in the spirit and give it away so it's not about me. I'm constantly serving, constantly giving. I'm not taking in. I'm giving out. That's what you call humility. You should come learn that from me. That's why people who are in serious training or discipleship should have serious humility. Right? So how do, we, how do we start that then? We come to Jesus. So a few more things about that I want to talk about. That's where all this begins. You and I must come again constantly to Jesus Christ as he is. That's the whole issue of rest. Developing meekness. Whatever it is you're picking out of what I'm saying. It all hinges on the actual person of Jesus and coming to him. This passage in Matthew 11, 28 through 30 or 31, where he says, come to me, I'll give you rest, that, that's rooted in the messages of the Old Testament prophets. It's actually an extremely typical, biblical, prophetic message to give. What Jesus was saying was not anything new. It's been something he had been saying through the prophets of old. Only now it's updated. It's centered on this incarnate man, Jesus, rather than the Lord of, of, in heaven who's invisible, speaking through the prophets. Now he's pointing to himself. But nonetheless, the message is the same. It's the message of repentance from the Old Testament. The prophets would call a wayward people back to God. 55. It's come to me, come to me, come to me. And he, there's, there's the, the first issue of turning away from sinfulness, idolatry, and all of its wicked fruit, and coming back to God himself, the person. Right? And then the second thing Isaiah says, and buy from me, I'll make you wealthy. You'll have plenty to drink. I'll bless you with abundance. Like God became like one of the ancient marketplaces. And says, I have the best food, I have the best wine, and you can buy as much as you want for free. See, this is the prophetic message. They always preached repentance. Return to the Lord. And then, the response was not merely forgiveness, but God would restore them and bless them with refreshing. 
That was always the prophetic message. They would always call him back to repentance and then say, and now God will refresh you. He'll give you his presence. He will bless you again with abundance. It's, it's like you've been, you've been working hard, you're exhausted, you're, you're sweating, your clothes are soaked, but the winds of God come and refresh you and cool you off and he gives you something to drink and you feel revived and refreshed when you return to the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. It's an Old Testament message. Come to me, I'll give you rest. He's quoting Isaiah 55 and explicitly quoting Jeremiah 6.16 when he says, now you'll find rest for your souls. Because Jeremiah said, come back to the ancient paths and you'll find rest for your soul. God always promises, if you'll come back, even though you've been totally wicked, if you'll come back, I won't just receive you. I'll bless you with rest. I'll refresh you. I'll revive you. You'll feel good. You'll feel powerful because of my blessing so that you can then maintain a powerful witness because I want you to represent me, not just be saved. I have a mission for you. That's why any of us who've experienced any level of revival when God has moved in history in any kind of revival if you visited or you were a part of it. It's the same thing. There's the call to repentance and then God refreshes with his presence. Mike's passage that he read was one of the passages I was going to read. I don't have time anyway. So it's good Mike read read that, but Peter said, just return. Repent. Have your sins washed away, and then the seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord will touch you up. This is just historical, biblical, prophetic preaching and teaching. Jesus is saying, if you return now to this manifestation of God, you will find rest for your souls. You will be refreshed. That's what some of us, you know, there's many of us here that we're not a part of the actual grounds for revival. It's just like Mike said, we're not trying to go back there. We're trying to take those values and still make them a part of our life now. We should still be Jesus-centered people. This is God's, this is what, I believe this is what the Spirit's saying to the King's people. Come back to Jesus and make him more and more of the focus and investment of your life. I had a conversation with uh, with, with Alan just before this where he was saying things not just about coming to Jesus but about other issues we were both talking about becoming refocused God's been speaking this independently to a lot of people it's like you have to make an investment in Jesus like a full life investment in Jesus and in what he's given you to do or it won't work there'll be stress so one of, one of the things we just need to do here is, as far as Jesus is saying, I believe, is, is really repent and turn to the Lord. Or there's been areas of our hearts that have resubmitted to sin or worldliness. I mean, and, and for, 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 for several months, maybe a couple of years, part of the rhythm of some of the folks that I've been acquainted with, not even just closely, but even just, you know, in the same environment of church and ministry that I've been a part of, I've noticed a real worldliness just creep back in and kind of take hold of God's people. I'm talking about people that have been in the midst of revival. Now they kind of grew up out of that a little bit and kind of lost their, their, their taste for simple holiness and have regained more of a taste for the world. And I would say, well, you know, that message hasn't changed. The good old biblical prophetic message from Jesus himself says, you, you know, it, it's time to turn back away and to maintain a life of repentance. It's not always having to feel bad for sin but always actually following Jesus and remaining invested in I would encourage you that if there's areas of worldliness, I'm not talking about 
like I'm, I'm going to pick out things for you. But if you know in your heart worldliness has crept back in and you've allowed it in the name of grace and in the name of, well, I'm not a legalist, that's sinful. We're using God's gospel of grace as an excuse to sin. And so in order to really find our identity in, in rest in Jesus, we have to repent. And it's, it's, and it's not just that. It's, it's turning away from sin. See, I understand that our bearing should be Jesus, not just trying not to sin. You understand? Like the call to repentance is not just away from sin. It's to Jesus. And so I, that's where my message is going to be. It's going to be Jesus-centered, not just don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But let's get to know Jesus. Let's enjoy Jesus. Let's let him rub off on us. But still, the biblical gospel has that negative also. We do live in a world in which we must resist the devil. That's biblical. We crucify the flesh. That's biblical. Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross. That's biblical. There is the positive of embracing Jesus. But there's also the negative things we have to be aware of that might creep in and dull our hearts from actually walking with Jesus. This is just something I've noticed. People have gloried in a kind of freedom where they will actually react against someone who might point out, you know, that may not be healthy for you to feast on in your heart. That may not be a healthy attitude toward life. That may not be a practice that's appropriate for a kingdom person. And then the response is, well, you're just trying to put me in bondage. That's legalism. No, legalism says if you don't do these things, you won't be saved. No one's putting that on anybody. Legalism just gives a bunch of rules as, as a culture that's a way of life that's oppressive. No one's doing that either. But there is such a thing as innocence, where the, the sensitivity to the Lord is important to us. If something makes the Lord blush, why should we enjoy it? So that's not legalism. That's union with Jesus. Why shouldn't we be sensitive on practical issues to what the Lord's sensitive to? Okay, we don't want to make a bunch of rules out there. Okay, fine. But isn't there a spirit who's called holy who might really blush over things that we feel free to do? And when we develop a little sensitivity to him, we'd be like, man, I can't go and engage in that kind of activity or absorb my mind in this sort of entertainment or this kind of conversation or go to drinking parties as easily as I could with my newfound freedom. I mean, maybe there's a balance where the Spirit of God is actually a person that's keeping us in touch with Jesus as He is. And His simple innocence may affect our lives differently than if we just lived them on our own. See, even on our level, we may not need to repent over big sins, but we may need to reinvest ourselves in Jesus and recover some of the innocence of His presence. And be sensitive to what makes him blush. And then on the other end of it, take seriously the Lord. And take seriously the work that he's called us to do, the people that he's called us to be with. And say, look, this is where my investment is. The Lord's called me here. This is life for me. I mean, I've been challenged. I'm speaking out of my own heart right now. I've been challenged on this. It's like I'm leading this work. So there's, a, there's already an automatic investment. But I've noticed, I've noticed some areas that I allow my own busy life. To get in the way of some of the things that's, that would more uh, aggressively cultivate this work in private. It's not the obvious public stuff. 
And the Lord spoke to me in prayer and said, you have to take this seriously. I called you to do this. This is some sidebar thing. This is your life now. You invest in it. This is what I've called you to do. Because for me, it's not just some, I'm not trying to promote a church. It's about Jesus to me. The Lord's really challenged me. And I've, then I've, at the exact same time, I've heard others with the exact same language. Unprompted by them. They initiate. Conversations come up. The Lord's been speaking to me. I need to invest myself back in Jesus and what he's called me to do. I'm talking about good people. It's just a strengthening of the Lord. I feel like that's something the Spirit's saying. Now I'm giving a little bit more of a public voice to it. But I'm finding God's been chattering already with people. So this is our message. If we want to come into a supernatural rest, come to me, Jesus says, includes this now. A sensitivity to his holiness that's even on a subtle level. Not being afraid of becoming legalistic. Some anti-legalistic people are legalistic about being anti-legalistic. I'm serious. It's like you try so hard to be non-denominational, you've created your own denomination. I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. Okay. Like one guy or a preacher I've heard say, oh, we're not, that's a religious spirit, that's a religious spirit, that's a religious spirit, that's a religious spirit, that's a religious spirit. I've come to find he has a religious spirit. Because he's religiously always looking for the religious spirit. Plus, if you're saying it that much, you have to have it. I mean, it's just... <laughs> we can be so sensitive. We don't want to be legalistic. There's like a grace legalism. We're legalistic about grace. Oh, I can't say that. You already have God's presence. You're already a yeah, That's true, but you're, you're shrill. You're speaking in this high-pitched tension. It's not of God. You've become legalistic about anti-legalism. That's immaturity, and that's happened. In our midst, in this area of the world where we have been, it may not have happened to you, but it's happened around us. Popular teachings are coming down the pike where we're allergic to anything that smacks of holiness. And we've lost something among our own people. We've, we've lost some of our love for the Lord and our investment in Him and walking with Him and being sensitive to things that might make Him blush. We have to recover that. We can't go on with the new wineskin, which is what we're... We don't want to go backwards. We want to go forward into the new wineskin. But we have to go into it with those dynamics that God has invested in us without losing. So we need to recover that. We need to take account, each one of us, and really make our life come to Jesus. God's been speaking to us to get the leaven out. We've talked about this. That can be so... Um, that, that can apply to so many things. I suppose I should probably just start to wind this down because you get the idea. Yeah. And, and I'll say one more thing. It's not just this jolt. Because one of the values that we hold is that the big service is not the one big event where everything gets done and then outside we kind of lose our way or go back to normal. I, I don't want to end with just a big altar call where people who need to repent just come forward. We're going to have a form of that. But sometimes we get in a rhythm where that, that's where it all counts and then we have trouble working it out. This has to become a lifestyle where we encourage one another in it. You know what I'm saying? So that we make a decision we're going to walk a certain way in holiness with Jesus and we stick it out and we encourage one another in it. But then there's that spiritual mystical part too where coming to Jesus is not just repenting from sin. But it's developing a relationship with him that we take seriously. Guys, I don't know how else to put it. Jesus... When he says, come to me, I said, it's the me he means, the mystery man, who didn't come to establish a political kingdom, but he did come to establish something. 
And it's awesome. Jesus is wonderful. Let's reabsorb our lives in him. I know that's, not, that, that's challenging to do when we have full-time jobs and we have kids running around. So like, when am I supposed to do that? You know, I don't know exactly, but I know the Lord has an answer, but I'll tell you this. Number one, it's possible. Number two, it's going to be inconvenient to the flesh. But number three, it will cultivate rest in your life. You'll be surprised at how the sacrifice is paid off. Just like any other relationship, only more so. Jesus is wonderful. We should come to him. Not only repenting from the leaven of worldliness that snuck in and began to grow like yeast, but also in, in the sense of developing that spiritual union with him where we're getting to know him in secret prayer. We're getting to know him in abiding prayer when we're about the day. We're rediscovering his stories and teachings in the Gospels. And we're just becoming reabsorbed and back in love with Jesus as our first love. What, what else can we do even if we're doing things in a new format? What good is that if we don't have Jesus? What good of that if we're, is that if we're not actually walking with him and developing relationship with him? So I feel like that's something the Spirit's saying. And I say this with what I believe is you know, the authority to say this in a setting such as we have. Jesus, the Spirit is saying, come to Jesus and, and reinvest a development of intimacy with him that transcends every other religious consideration or any other aspect of life. Come away from the idols. Even good things can get in the way of our first love. We, most of us have families. Most of us have jobs here. We're all dealing with the same things. I say this out of a lot of sympathy, but it's still something that we need to do. I'm, I'm finding I'm having to, to, cut, to cut certain corners and, and inconvenience myself in certain ways in order to develop my relationship with Jesus. And then the irony is, he blesses my life. So the things I sacrifice become no sacrifice at all. And I'm just, I'm just getting started in a new kind of investment. I'm finding grace to do it, but I still... You know, get really challenged sometimes. Uh, I'm inviting you because I'm believing the Spirit saying this to all of us. And it's the necessary foundation for this work and for bringing the kingdom to our city. So let's do this. Here's the way I'd like to respond. Let's stand together. And, and most of you know how we're going to do this. I, I want to pray together. I'd like for you to... Um, Find one another throughout these two rooms. You know, however you want to do it, you don't have to meet with your home fellowship people. It doesn't matter. But get in small groups here in a moment. Get in small groups where there's three or four, you know, maybe five or something. I guess that's an odd number. It doesn't matter. But if they're too big, we, we won't be as effective because I want people to share a little bit. And um, as the Lord allows you, confess some things you need to confess. If it's something huge and it's not something that's appropriate for that group, then, then, then don't. That's fine. If it's something you feel free to share or even you can generalize, yeah, I want to reinvest too. I've, I've had the need to do that. It's healthy to confess these things to one another. Don't be weird. Just even if you have to say it generally, if there is something to share, even if it's totally general, then just confess that. I, I feel like there's healing in that. And then with that, when everybody gets to share or however you want to coordinate it, then pray for one another. Pray for revival in each other's hearts. Pray for rest to come from God's presence. Pray for there to be the joy of following Jesus and 
wisdom and practical things for those that might be so busy it's difficult even to imagine reinvesting in Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll pray for one another about that. Just care for one another. Minister to one another during that time. And then you know what? When you're done with that little cycle, and, and, and just, just break through any awkwardness. Just go for it. When you're done with that, or if you want to mix it in, pray for one another to be healed where there might be any sickness, there might be any disease or an injury or anything like that. Pray for healing. Because I feel like that's part of the refreshing that comes when we repent. The season's refreshing has much to do with the healing of our bodies, the healing of our minds, and the healing of our relationships. So let's do that now. Just kind of, you know, meander through the awkwardness of moving around a little bit and hook up with some people. Just hook up. You know, please don't go beyond five, but then again, if you wind up doing that, it's okay. You know, I ain't the boss of you, but, but just get in smaller groups and talk to one another about where you need prayer for this. And then pray for healing, too. So, Josh, would you mind just, just spinning a CD for this we have in the background? And then I'll close us in prayer in a couple.